following is a presentation of Artisan Church in Rochester, New York. Welcome to Easter at Artisan Church. If I didn't uh, get a chance to say it before, and if we haven't met, my name is Scott, and it is my great privilege to be the pastor of this beautiful community of faith. And welcome to each one of you, particularly those of you who are visiting with us today. We're so glad that you are here. As we start, I'm going to do two things. Uh, First, I'm going to take a quick poll of the congregation, and then I'm going to ask you to uh, close your eyes and engage in a little thought experiment and imaginative exercise. So here's the poll. If someone comes to you and says, I have good news and I have bad news, which do you want to hear first? By show of hands, how many people want the bad news first? Okay, that is a very strong majority. (laughs) How many people want the good news first? Interesting. Okay, we have a handful of people. Now, you might be interested to know that the science bears this out. There's a study done at UC Riverside about this very thing. And uh, 75% of people, when they have to receive both good news and bad news, prefer to hear the bad news first. Now, here's the interesting flip side of that. The study also sought to find out which, people, uh, which type of news people would like to give first. And if you are the bearer of both good and bad news, 70% of people want to give the good news first. Now, the context of this study is uh, medicine. We have a lot of people who are medical professionals here, and so it might interest you to know, it might be something that you could keep in mind, that medical professionals, just like the rest of us, would prefer to give good news first and bad news second, but patients overwhelmingly prefer to get the bad news first. So that's the poll. Um, I think, based on our numbers, we actually did better than the study. You guys beat it. You did more than 75%, so congratulations. I always knew you're a very high-caliber congregation, and now we have... uh, Scientific proof. So here's the second thing I want to ask you to do. I want you to think of a person. You can close your eyes if it helps, whatever works. Particularly, I want you to think of a woman. I want you to think of a person who is a woman who you know. Somebody, in fact, that you're close to. Maybe maybe it's your mom or your daughter or your wife or a cousin or teacher or a colleague, somebody you're close to, a woman. And now I want you to imagine this woman running up to you and excitedly telling you, I have good news. What would the news be? If you're thinking of a specific person, you may have a specific bit of news that she might be bearing. I wonder, would, would you believe her? Would you be a little skeptical? Or would it depend on the type of news it was? All right. In the church, we love to talk about good news. We have a word for it in the church. It's actually part of our new series title. The word is gospel. Right? Our series now, starting today, is a beautiful gospel. Uh, the word gospel comes from an old English word, Godspell, or Godspell. And that old English word, Godspell, is a direct linear translation of a Greek word. The Greek word is euangelion, or 
if we anglicize it just a little bit, evangelion. And you can maybe see that that's where we get the word for evangelism, um, which is kind of good newsification. <laughs> and it's where we get the word evangelical, uh, which um, means that if we identify with that word, we are supposed to be bearers of good news. The, the, the word in Greek, euangelion, simply means good message. Angelion, angel, messenger. Okay. You means good. Right. Means good message, glad tidings, great news. That is what the word gospel is supposed to mean. And we Christians love to tell people the good news, don't we? It's even a caricature. You can kind of hear that southern preacher saying, Brother, have you heard the good news? I'm not anti-southern or anything. Regardless of what accent you say it in, sometimes what follows that question starts to come off the rails pretty quickly. It seems to get weird kind of fast. Is it good news, what you're about to say to me? Is it maybe bad news? Is it something in between? Is it a mix of both? And never mind whether I'd rather have the good news or the bad news first if it's a mixed bag. I'm not quite sure the way we talk about it even understands what those words mean. When we talk about the good news in the church, it it often goes something like this. Are you ready? Good news. Every human being is a sinner. You're a sinner. Good news. Sinners go to hell. That's the rule. Good news. All sin requires a payment in the form of punishment. Good news. Uh, Sin also requires a blood sacrifice. That's the rules. Good news. God sent his beloved son Jesus into the world so that he could be made into a blood sacrifice, so that he could be punished in our place, even though he did nothing wrong. Good news, because Jesus took this punishment in our place, we can be forgiven of our sins and spend eternity with God. Now, how many bullet points did I have to get through before I said something that started to resemble good news? And by the time you get through all those bullet points, does that good one actually sound that great? I mean, do you really think spending an eternity with that God is good news? This news isn't good. These tidings are not glad. And this gospel is not beautiful. Here's the other thing we love to do in the church. We love to draw pictures of the good news. And when you start drawing pictures of the good news to make it easier to understand or um, maybe uh, quicker to convince somebody or decide that they're not going to be convinced and shake the dust off your feet, or worse yet, to try to explain it to little children. Well, let me just show you some of the imagery that, that you can see when the church tries to draw pictures of this type of news. All right. You have people tiptoeing across uh, the, the crossbeam over a chasm of flames. You have people deciding 
where they're going to go. And the two places are very different from each other. You have a, a, a little comic book devil telling you that you were wrong and you're going to pay. My guess is, as you continue to look at these beautiful images, the number one reason why most of us never open our mouths to tell anybody the good news. I mean, seriously, how many of you have uh, evangelized or good newsified any of your friends recently? The number one reason that we'd never open our mouths to tell anyone the good news is that we don't believe this story ourselves. And if we do, we don't love this story. We don't find it beautiful. I mean, who would look at these pictures and go, ooh, that looks like good news? <laughs> oh, I could make a s'more on my way across. <laughs> okay, take those away. We don't want to look at those anymore. Because I believe the news is good. I believe the story of the gospel is beautiful. And it's Easter. I want to tell you about it. And the way I want to tell you about it, well, let me see if you can guess. Uh, Josiah, don't put this on the screen just yet. I'm going to tell you about the good news with a single verse from the Bible. Do you know what the verse is? It's John 3... Okay, put it on the, put it on the screen. John 3, 17... Ah, interesting. John 3.17 is the scriptural equivalent of the scrawny guy standing next to the homecoming king in your yearbook photos. (laughs) Now, here's the thing about that guy. He always knows something about the king (laughs) that you don't. Everybody knows John 3.16. Even if you don't know what it says, you at least know that people hold up a sign of it at the football game, right? Uh, If you were raised in the church, you may have been uh, encouraged with uh, candy or something else to memorize John 3.16. And I memorized it in the uh, King James English. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever shall believeth in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. You guys are mouthing it along with me because some of you had the same type of upbringing. That verse is absolutely true and it is beautiful. I love John 3.16. But John 3.17 has a very interesting story to tell us. Uh, You could look it up, but it's going to be right there on the screen. There it is. Indeed, God did not send the Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. Now, this verse sets up for us a dichotomy to opposing ideas. On one hand, you have the idea of salvation. And on the other hand, you have the idea of condemnation. And it says that Jesus came to do one and not the other. So that if your definition of salvation begins with condemnation, then it is inconsistent with the gospel that Jesus preached. And what's more, it's inconsistent with the entire pattern of his teaching and his ministry. Let me give you one example. It's from John chapter 8. And uh, if you'd like to look it up in the Bibles, the page number's there. You don't have to. I'm going to summarize this story. And many of you, maybe perhaps most of you, know this story already. 
And even if you don't know the story, I guarantee you, you will know at least one sentence from it. So here's how this story goes in John chapter 8. Jesus is teaching in the temple, and the scribes and the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, the religious experts, those in power, have identified that Jesus is uh, a problem. And so they're trying to trick him into saying something that will get him in trouble and out of their hair. So what they do is, while he's teaching in the temple, they bring to him a woman who they have caught in the act of adultery. By the way, you don't accidentally catch someone in the act of adultery. There was a setup, I'm guessing. They bring her before Jesus in the temple, and they say, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. Now, in the law of Moses, as you know, we are commanded to stone such women. This is a capital offense. What do you say we should do? And Jesus stoops down and starts writing in the sand with his finger. And they press him, and they press him, and they keep asking him, and eventually he stands up and he says, okay, you're right. This is a capital offense. You can execute her under one condition. And here's the sentence that everybody knows in one version of the Bible, one translation or another. Let him who is without sin cast the first stone. You can kill her, But the first rock has to be thrown by the one of you who doesn't have any sin in his life. And there's an uncomfortable pause. And the oldest and wisest one holding a rock suddenly remembers that he had an appointment (laughs) and walks away. And then the next eldest puts down his rock And gradually they all evaluate their own lives and realize that under Jesus' condition, they can't carry out this sentence. And eventually, after they've all walked away, it's just Jesus and the woman. And he says to her, Ma'am, where are your accusers? Does no one condemn you? And she says, No one, sir. And he says to her, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, do not sin. Go and sin no more, the common translation says. Now, many, many Christians who I talk to, friends of mine, sometimes colleagues of mine, um, God forbid I'm arguing with somebody on the internet, They love this verse, go and sin no more. And any time you bring up any concept of extending grace to people around you, they say, well, Jesus said to her, go and sin no more. Now, I ask you, what kind of person can read that story, the one that I just summarized for you, and come away thinking that that is the point of it? Go and sin no more. And so I tell my friends when they try to make this argument to me, I say, okay, you can tell sinners, go and sin no more, on two conditions. You have to do two things first, because we do, after all, want to imitate Christ, correct? It's a good question, because they have to say yes. (laughs) I say, okay, if you want to imitate Christ by saying, go and sin no more, you have to do the two things that Jesus did first. The first thing you have to do is you have to stand in between 
the sinner and the religious people who are attacking the sinner. You have to drive away the Pharisees, as it were. You have, to, you have to be willing to take the rock in your own face and get rid of them. Every single one has to go away or it doesn't count and you can't move on to the second step. Once you have driven off all the people who are accusing the sinner, you can do the second thing, which is you have to turn to the sinner and say, I do not condemn you. Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Once you have done those two things, once you have driven off the religious authorities who are accusing the sinner, and once you have told the sinner that you do not condemn him or her, then, sure, you can say, go and sin no more. But until that point, shut up. You know, we also, and I don't, I don't, this is a little inside baseball, I'm not going to go too far into it, but we love Romans chapter 1. We love to use that. To, we don't tend to keep going into Romans chapter 2, and, and it's my contention that Romans 1 is sort of a setup for chapter 2. Romans 2 verse 4 says this. Do you not, and Paul is speaking here to um, religious people who think that they're, they're being saved because they're so good at being religious. Do you not realize that God's kindness is meant to lead you to rep- repentance? Notice he did not say, Do you not realize that God's condemnation is supposed to lead you to repentance? He said, God's kindness is supposed to lead you to repentance. Kindness kindness leading to repentance, that's the start of a beautiful story. That's the beginnings of a beautiful gospel. What if when we told people the good news, when we evangelized them, What if it was beautiful? What if instead of starting with good news, everyone's a sinner, you're a sinner, sinners go to hell, that's the rules. Instead of starting that way, what if we started like this? Good news. God made you. Good news. God loves you. Good news. No matter how many times you turn your back on God, no matter how spectacularly you sin, no matter how many religious people want to drag you before the judgment seat of God, God will never stop loving you. Good news. Jesus didn't come into the world to condemn you or to save you from God. Jesus is God in the very flesh. And the good news that Jesus is God in the very flesh means that Jesus, in his actions, demonstrates God's posture toward humanity. And good news, the way that Jesus demonstrates God's posture toward humanity, he let us kill him. He did not strike back. He responded with love and with forgiveness. Now that is good news. That is glad tidings. That is a beautiful gospel. But it gets even more beautiful. I told you a few minutes ago the story of a woman 
dragged before Jesus by the authorities and facing capital punishment. Bad news. And earlier I asked you to picture a woman, someone who's close to you in your own life, bringing you good news. And now I want to tell you one more story. It's the story of some women who had good news of their own to tell. After all, it's Easter. And so let's read the story of the resurrection. Let's read it from the Gospel of Luke. And if you'd like to turn with me in your Bibles, you can. Luke chapter 24. Or you can just listen. That's always okay, too. Twenty-four, one through twelve. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they came to the tomb, taking the spices that they had prepared. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body. While they were perplexed about this, suddenly two men in dazzling clothes stood beside them. The women were terrified and bowed their faces to the ground. But the men said to them, Why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be handed over to sinners and be crucified and on the third day rise again. Then they remembered his words. And returning from the tomb, they told all this to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the other women with them who told this to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale. And they did not believe them. But Peter got up and ran to the tomb. Stooping and looking in, he saw the linen cloths by themselves. Then he went home, amazed at what had happened. Now, I would like to point out here something that's very interesting about this story. Did you notice that this group of women were the first people in the Bible to proclaim the gospel? And they told the gospel to the apostles. This group of women were the first preachers of the gospel. 33 AD. Of course, the men folk thought it was idle nonsense. (laughs) And in some places, that's still the reaction when a woman gets up to teach men. So the gospel story... It really is one of those I have good news and bad news stories. But maybe not in the way you think. I don't mean to say bad news, you're headed to hell. Good news, Jesus will save you. Right? That's not the type of bad news, good news I'm talking about. Here's the bad news, good news I'm talking about. Bad news. This Jesus whom we loved, in whom we saw so much of God's design, All the principalities and powers of the world, all the forces of evil, human, demonic, and the combination thereof, conspired to snuff out the beautiful, living Word of God. This force of healing and forgiveness and love. And they succeeded. They killed Him. And for a few days, it seemed that all the beauty in the world was lost. That's bad news. But good news. 
on the third day, God raised Jesus from the dead. And this is beautiful. It's beautiful not because it it gives us a get-out-of-hell-free card, but because the resurrection was the ultimate conquest over those principalities and powers that conspired to kill Jesus in the first place. It was God taking the best shot that the powers of evil had to give and coming out on top. You know, it's interesting to me, that that other kind of maybe sort of uglier gospel, I realized as I was preparing this sermon this week, it doesn't require a resurrection. If we're saved by someone's punishment and pain, the crucifixion does the trick. But if you want to conquer Satan, sin, and death, (laughs) that requires a miracle. That requires a resurrection. That requires a more beautiful gospel. See, the gospel doesn't look like a bridge over a chasm of flames. It looks like Jesus crushing the head of the serpent. The gospel doesn't look like a throne of judgment where we can drag sinners and terrify them into repentance so that we can feel pretty good about our position. It looks like God saying to our accuser, get away from her, she is my beloved daughter. The gospel doesn't look like us sprouting wings and floating off to heaven in the sweet by and by. It looks like God proclaiming release to the captives and giving them abundant life starting now. The gospel does not aim to answer the question, if you died tonight, do you know for sure that you would go to heaven? It aims to answer the question, If you knew you had another 40 years to live on this earth, how would you go about it? Where would you place all of your hope? Whose story would yours be based on? What would be the lens through which you look at everything? And what difference does that make in your own life? Yes, in your sin, but in the whole world. I want to challenge us today and over the next several weeks to see the gospel as more than a few spiritual facts, as sacred and true as those facts may be, and instead see it as a living, powerful presence that changes our lives with its beauty. I want a definition of eternal life that includes a different kind of life in this life, in this world. I want a gospel that we can embody, that we can put onto ourselves. I want one that is truly revolutionary. One that saves not just our individual souls, as if that's the only thing we were supposed to care about, but one that saves the whole world. I want a beautiful gospel. Do you? Let's pray. Gracious God, there is so much beauty in this story. Help us to look past the ugliness that we see in the world around us and in our own lives and in our own failings and look instead to the beauty of your Son. 
taking the worst that the world could give, taking all that evil had to offer, submitting to it, forgiving it, and loving it. Help us to look to the empty tomb in faith, knowing that the resurrection means you have conquered the powers of evil. And help us to step into that victory, that great victory of Christ, and carry it to those around us. And help it to be in their ears and in their eyes truly good news, truly glad tidings, a truly beautiful gospel. It is now our sacred privilege to celebrate the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. All who humbly put their trust in Christ and desire His help that they may lead a holy life, all who are truly sorry for their sins and would be delivered from them, all who would walk in love with their neighbors and intend to live a new life, are invited to draw near with faith and to receive this holy sacrament. Come to this sacred table, not because you must, but because you may. Come to testify not that you are righteous, but that you sincerely love our Lord Jesus Christ and desire to be his true disciples. Come not because you are strong, but because you are weak. Not because you have any claim on the grace of God, but because in your frailty and sin, you stand in constant need of God's mercy and help. Come not to express an opinion, but to seek God's presence and pray for the Spirit. The table of the Lord is open to all who would come. For more information, visit us at artisanchurch.com.